Welcome to the Women of the West podcast, exploring trials and bliss of women blazing trails for themselves through the Western way of life. Lorianne Hartnett is a West Coast gal who lived around the world before landing in Washington State. Through many different careers and stages of life, Lori found her passion to help others by being the support she wished she'd had. This woman is a force to be reckoned with, and I'm so excited to see the light she continues to bring into the world with her joy, courage, and tenacity. In this episode, we cover divorce, litigational abuse, what made Lori Ann who she is today, and where she's headed next. You know, sometimes you have to wonder, like, uh, you know, you're sitting in a waiting room, waiting for your turn, and you think about things, and it's like, how did I get here today, and why? So, things like that make me think, you know, why things happen for a reason. I was married to two men, both had issues. Um, they were both uh, violent. Um, one had a drinking problem. The other one just had a lot of issues. And I'm a little bit older than your other guests. So I'm going to date myself a little bit. But back in my first marriage, I spent one Friday night being held by my hair in a security building, a military security building. And my ex-husband was drunk and he had the door shut. And when all was said and done about four hours later, they told me, well, you just have a problem. Your husband was drunk. You just need to take him home. And they refused to do anything about it. I mean, I was held by my hair in an office for four hours off the floor. <laughs> oh they were God. afraid of him. Yeah. Yeah. So it's things have changed. Um, same era, same place. I was a professional bartender once. I actually had a government position working in the club there. Really loved it. Really enjoyed it. Um, we did a lot of what you call hails and farewells. Um, worked a lot of admirals parties, things of that nature. I was the wardroom girl. I would push my little cart across the base, which was hilarious. All dressed up, you know, with my little cart and I would do um, the little office parties and stuff like that. And the only time I ever received a complaint ever was a gentleman who was going to leadership and management school there and he complained that I was unprofessional to him. And what had happened was he would come in. All right. He first came in. It was on a Sunday. I had weekend duty and he and a buddy were sitting there and he was saying some extremely inappropriate and very disgusting things, hoping to get a rise out of me. And I'm used to that. Just refuse to get a rise out of me. So for that, I think he was there for two months. I think it's, it's either six weeks or two months. Every time I saw him coming, I would have his drink ready for him. Rum and Coke with a squeeze of lime, Cuba Libra. And so just so I would not have to interact with him. And apparently it had made him so angry that he made a complaint. So I had to go to the principal's office and talk about it. So I went to the supervisor's office and we talked about it. And he said, you know, he said, in your profession, you have to accept these things. You have to accept that you're going to be grabbed. You're going to be called things. You're going to be, um, what's the word I'm looking for? More than flirting. Mm. What's the word? I'm having a blocking moment. Anyway. I don't know. Approached. Uh, yeah, yeah, inappropriate, you know, uh, mm -hmm. statements made to your person. 
And he says, well, you have to think about it this way. Um, I suggest you go to, you take an acting class. And you have to remember that people that work at Disneyland and they smile and they wave, you know, that's all an act. You have to disregard everything else. Whereas in today's world, there would be something that would be brought down upon the person that was the offender. That mm -hmm. was my job. That is what I did. And I should not have been subject to the insults, the remarks, the sexual harassment that I had received. There had been inappropriate touching and all kinds of things. And at that point in time, I had no recourse. So things have changed mm -hmm. a lot since then. Um, my second marriage, he just had issues. And I truly feel bad for him, but they were not my issues. And I did nothing to cause those issues. And I was subjected to a lot of psychological abuse, a lot of I want to say emotional abuse, mm -hmm. litigational abuse. If anybody knows what that means, that means abuse in a court of law where somebody repeatedly files erroneous filings that keep getting thrown out, but they keep doing that just to harass you. Just basically mm -hmm. clogs up your time. Um, and financially, um, he took me through the pee patch mm -hmm. and I lost everything that I ever had because I love my children. And he knew that. So um, that was something that I don't wish upon anybody. I don't think that, honestly, that happened 20 years ago. Things have changed a bit, but they haven't. They have, but they haven't. Mm -mm. There's still a point where you have to prove yourself. When you're a female, you have to prove yourself innocent. And I don't believe that that's right. Mm -hmm. That's very wrong. Well, and, you know, even today I went to the doctor's office um, just for a checkup. And, you know, one of the questions on this questionnaire is like, have you ever been um, like a subject of any like sexual violence or anything? And my answer is yes. But for some reason, I couldn't even think about it. I just marked no. So I wouldn't have to think about it or explain it, you know, even to this just piece of paper in a doctor's office, you know, and I really thought afterwards why did i do that you know well, just because, because i been brought up yeah i just wasn't shamed. comfortable doing it yeah and well also it's um oh my gosh I, it's, it was such a long journey it was probably seven years from start to finish so what was the final straw so, that like drove you away from him Boy. Uh, we don't have to talk about it if you okay, don't want so, to. <laughs> no, it's just it's crazy. Um it's it's actually it's actually quite elemental to the cycle of abuse and how abuse works. So my plane went to California, his went to Florida mm -hmm. when we left Germany. And I filed for divorce. That seemed to anger him quite a bit. And it took him 16 months is when I, how long I was in California because I bought a house and everything. And he came and got the kids for his allocated summer visitation. And said if I ever wanted to see them again, I would have to move to Florida. 
which meant to me that there would be an ugly legal battle that would ensue because he was into legal battles. He had a paralegal license, so he was all into that, and I was not. I mean, mm-hmm. very expensive. And, um, going through litigation is, is very expensive. And so I decided to, he said, just give it a try. We'll try to work things out. We'll buy a house and da, 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 da. We'll get back together. So I thought for the sake of the children and the marriage, I would give it one last try. So I sold my house and moved to California or moved, excuse me, moved to Florida on my own dime, mind you. And when I got there, not much had changed. Unfortunately, we, the victims, such as myself, many, many times, we did not walk into the relationship saying, yay, I'm going to be abused. Woohoo, this is going to be fun. No, we walk into the relationship with, you know, stars in our eyes, like we love this person, our love can mm-hmm. save them, and blah, blah, blah. You know, all this crazy, I love you stuff. And so you do everything you can to save the relationship, which is not always the wisest choice. I moved to Florida and I want to say within a year he had found somebody else and he left me for somebody else which was the happiest day of my life seriously the happiest day of my life I had all these misperceptions about as a Christian you know you should stay in the marriage divorce is bad and blah 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 blah. well I have a Mm -hmm. completely different point of view now but um the fact that he left me is the happiest day of my life. However, that's not where the story ends, and it's not a happy ending. We divorced. That was at Christmas time of 91 and, excuse me, 2001. <laughs> where, what year am I in? Ah, 2001, and it's grateful. So, and we, our divorce is final on Halloween of 2002, which was very fitting. But, um, it wasn't until the spring of 2007 was the last court date we had. So for five years post-divorce, I got, I want to say the abuse actually escalated. <laughs> if you could mm-hmm. even fathom that. It actually escalated. And that's where financial abuse came in. I got conned out of every single penny that I ever had. And when I say conned, he had a very clever attorney, and I don't even know how these people exist, but they do. And that attorney mm-hmm. knew how to work the system to basically milk me dry mm-hmm. of everything I ever had. How does this happen? Well, when I met my ex-husband, mm-hmm. he didn't have much. I did. And during the course of our marriage, we managed to buy two houses, piece of property, accumulate, you know, the usual mutual funds, IRAs, and everything else. And by Mm -hmm. the end of the marriage, I walked away with nothing. As a matter of fact, I had to file bankruptcy because Mm -hmm. he left me with all the bills. Because we had our kids in private school. Yeah, we we had our kids in a private Christian school, and it was $800 a month for them. He didn't pay any of the bills for... Like six months, and mind you, he was making a really decent salary. Plus, he was getting paid by the VA to go back to school. He was working on his master's. He was making quite a bit of money. 
probably, I want to say mm-hmm. upwards of 70,000 plus a year. And I was a student, but he left me with all the bills mm-hmm. and he got away with it. How does that happen? Very clever. Anyway, um, when the state of Florida Bar Association calls you up and says, Miss Hartnett, you're legally divorced, but your divorce is not legal. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he says, well, he says, first of all, how the hell did he ever get away with paying only $198 a month child support for two children? He says, the gentleman on the other, the attorney on the other end of the phone said, that's not even legal for one child making minimum wage. And he said, how the hell did he ever get away with having a contingency on your houses? I go, what do you mean? He says, well, it says here, it says wife shall be given a quick claim deed upon procurement of a bona fide buyer. He goes, that's because you can't, it's illegal. That's a contingency. You can't have an agreement, a divorce agreement with a contingency and either or. He says it doesn't work that way. He says, tell me what happened. And I said, well, I said my ex would not agree, would not agree, would not agree, would not agree. And then finally, you know, both attorneys were saying, look, you're just racking up bills here. Agree to something. So he did. And the opposing attorney's side, you have to go through an arbitrator. The opposing attorney side um, volunteered to write up the mediation agreement. And then two weeks later, we went to the judge's chambers to have it signed and then we'd be divorced. Well, usual, normal, customary, mm-hmm. it would be that the opposing side would write it up and fax it in mm-hmm. to the judge's clerk because that's the checks and balance system to make sure that it's all legal and that everybody agrees on it. Well, they didn't do that because the opposing side was not even required since we had agreed to something, was not required to even attend the, the mm-hmm. meeting at the judge's chambers to have the divorce decree signed. So what they did is they held the paperwork until the day of when my attorney and I are waiting. We're the first on the docket. We go into the judge's chambers and the judge says, okay, where's the other side? And we're like, I don't know. So we waited five minutes and then the judge called the other side's office and he goes, well, you know, I don't have to be there. And she says, yeah, but you have the paperwork. He goes, I'll fax it in. Mm-hmm. That's how he did it. That's how he did it. That's how he got around that checks and balance system. I'd never seen what was written up. I had no idea mm-hmm. what was if what was written up was what we had agreed upon. I don't know because we didn't get to see it. And it mm-hmm. was assumed or it was implied that everything mm-hmm. was thus and so. And it wasn't. And that's how it, it got signed and written into law, so to speak, and how that got passed. And it took four and a half years to remedy that situation. And during that four and a half years, I lost the two houses because of the way he had cleverly worded everything in there. He decided he, at that point in time, he had remarried and they put everything in her name. He refinanced the two houses in question of which he could do that. and put it in her name. And when all was said and done, that changed everything to a whole different mm-hmm. court of law because she was not party to the divorce. That's how they got mm-hmm. away with everything. That's how I basically got taken to the pee patch. 
So do you remember how you felt when everything was finally, I mean, not, I mean, I'm going to say remedied, but it's still an unjust situation, but. Oh, awesome. No, (laughs) it wasn't the best day. I will tell you what was the worst Mm -hmm. part was going through the four and a half years of the blah, blah in between because there was a lot of, um, Mm-hmm. For lack of a better term, stalking going on. Um, I was going through the same program at UWF that he went through. I went, I have a degree in, I have a bachelor's in psychology and I also have a bachelor's in interdisciplinary social sciences with an emphasis in diversity studies. Mm-hmm. I have a minor in social work and I have a certificate in human resources. And it took me about, mm-hmm. eh, about six years to accomplish that. I want to say, because I had a, there was a lot of stops and starts in between. And I do have some tips on that too. <laughs> the second year that I was in UWF mm-hmm. was when the violence started really increasing. And because that's when he was with his new wife and they wanted everything. And they wanted, I know this probably sounds like a story or something, but it's not. It's this one fall semester. And I want to say it was like October or something like that. I mean, we're about six, seven weeks into the semester. And I'm not too far from the administration building. I just parked my little minivan and I get out to, you know, go to class. And his wife pulls up and starts talking all kinds of crap to me. They were forever. She was also a student there. They, I think they both were working on their masters. Mm-hmm. We were in the same programs. So I was kind of like a couple of years behind them. So she was forever trying to get me in a situation to say that I attacked her. As a matter of fact, she did say that. I've been to court several times, and the first one was just a humdinger. It's hilarious. But anyway, um, this particular moment was um, not so funny. I just I couldn't take it anymore. I really could not take it anymore. I'm surprised I ever got through school with my brains intact and with the grades I did, because, you know, I could say anything to the young folks today, anybody going back to school, go to school when you're, you know, when you're younger. So you're not muddied up with all this mush stuff that just keeps you separated from what you should be doing, which is focusing on yourself and your school. But, um, I walked in the administration building after that, it's where uh, registration and everything is. And I just, I had a complete meltdown. But I said, I can't do this anymore. I, I have to disenroll. I, I can't do it. I can't do it. I was crying and everything. And I'm going to cry right now thinking about it. And this really sweet lady came out. She goes, the, she goes, don't worry. We got you. We got you. And she hand walked me all the way over to the counseling building. And they said, okay, calm down. What's going on? And I told them what was going on. And they said, okay, we, we're going to medically disenroll you. He said, that means you're not, mm-hmm. you don't have to worry about paying everything back because you're past the time of dis, you know, disenrolling without wow. a fee. And what you're going to do is you're going to come and you're going to counsel a minimum of three days a week with us. And we're going to see you through to graduation. And I just, I get really teary eyed now because mm-hmm. if it wasn't for people like that, I don't know what I would have done. I really don't know. Because when you're by yourself and you've got two people that are constantly, I mean, I would, no kidding, I I was in a work study program with the Department of Juvenile Justice at that time where I was working as a 
what they call as an aftercare counselor. I actually worked for the state of Florida as an aftercare counselor, working with DJJ for, you know, working with um, juvenile delinquents. And um, th- this kind of stuff does not go well with that. You You can't be... You have to be a good example. You have to be a leader and you have to be strong, you know, for the young folks that look up to you. And it was probably the hardest thing I ever did because he was also in the same program with a grant from UWF. He was actually the assistant superintendent of a juvenile residential facility. And since he had been with law enforcement much longer than myself, he had a quote-unquote reputation and so it used to kind of make me extremely angry when I would be all dressed up in a suit my hair up in a bun and my badge on and I'd have to go to court with these juveniles because I was always in court with them and the same deputies that came to my house when I called them for help because my ex was on the roof with a chainsaw or something like that and they'd look at me and they'd say, you're instigating. You have to be. You have to have done something. Mm-hmm. That was always the common theme. Same guys were hitting on me and they didn't realize who I was. <laughs> I never said a word. I still have all mm-hmm. their cards. Hey, guys. Hey. I still have all their cards in a box that I kept just for that reason. Wow. It's like it's the stereotyping generalization of I want to say he said she said and people take sides well I don't believe in that and that's what I'm all about is how you say (gasps) my approach now to domestic violence and (laughs) I just launched my website last night it's really raw (gasps) yes send you the link um it's really raw Okay. Super raw. It's, uh, I mean, I was up till 4.30 in the morning going, oh my gosh, I feel so empowered. I pulled the trigger. Yay. I did it. I did it. I did it. But my approach to domestic violence is very non-traditional to the normal approach that everybody else Mm -hmm. takes. Um, You're never going to be able to change his mind or her mind or their mind, whoever is committing the abuse, that's up to Mm -hmm. them and not up to you. All you can do is change your approach and how you think about things. And in one way, I was very fortunate to know his issues and I I I was very hurt for him. However, that did not give him the right to destroy my life because he could. He used to tell me that I hit you because you let me. Of course, I never would let him. But he goes, I hit you because you let me. And then I hit you again. Because you let me do it the first time. And just some of the things that he brainwashed me into thinking that I was just a non-human. And, you know, I don't want to stick around to see if they change. (laughs) Kind of thing. Uh -uh. No, no more. Uh So. My approach Mm -hmm. to to domestic violence nowadays is like, even to the, okay, you asked me how I felt 
the very last day, the very last day in court. Oh, Lord. Um, I went through three attorneys for the divorce. And the one attorney that I really wanted, the first attorney, she was not, she's not worth anything. Second attorney, what happened to the second attorney? I can't, oh, yeah. Second attorney, his name was uh, Mr. Stokes. I don't know I if you ever not. heard of the King Brothers. Yeah, oh, okay. two boys in Pensacola, Florida, who killed their father with a baseball bat. Did you ever hear that story? Mm-hmm. He was their attorney. Yeah, he was a high-profile attorney that took on crazy cases. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm. He wanted my case. He's like, oh, my God. But um, unfortunately, he passed on. He was in an airplane accident. So that happened to that. And then my last attorney, she messed up so bad, she ripped up her bill. Mm-hmm. She said, I'm not even going to charge you. She, she knew mm-hmm. that what had happened, she could lose her license for because the divorce agreement wasn't even legal. And she had allowed that to happen without seeing, you know, it just goes on and on. But anyway, so the next go around, I went through three other attorneys and they did the same thing. And this is no lie. They ripped up their bills because of the craziness from my ex. Just, I mean, we have two volumes in the Milton courthouse in mm-hmm. Santa Rosa County, Florida, two volumes of his garbage in there mm-hmm. because he was just, cause he could. And that's called litigational abuse. It's mm-hmm. financial abuse and that it, it ties up all your money. And it's called litigational abuse because he has no intent of agreeing on any or resolving any problems. He just files consistent anything just to keep you tied up in court to ruin your reputation, to discredit you, whatever. And the very last day was the day that it was where Judge Goodman, oh, I love her so much. She is such an amazing person. She was also the juvenile judge as well as my divorce judge. And so I was, we're on a first name basis. But anyway, um, anyway, it's pretty sad to be that way, but she kept me in her chamber after she had, it was decided that she could not help me with any of these things that he had done because it now, because of, she said, because you went outside the law, i.e. he put it, everything in mm-hmm. his is then, and then it was, came out to be his ex-wife's name. There was no way that she could help me, that that would have to go through a civil court now. And of course, anything going into a civil court requires a lot more money. And it's another, it could, it could last for years. Mm-hmm. And by the time everything was recouped, if, you know, that could ever be, um, it, the attorney would get all the money, not me. So, and it took four and a half years for the Department of Revenue to straighten out the child support. Mm -hmm. And I had waived alimony, of which I was eligible for alimony. I waived that. I was given temporary alimony for two years of really virtually nothing. So, I mean, I really learned so much. So what I did learn the most was that the best approach to domestic violence is strictly mm-hmm. going by what the law allows. And the problem with attorneys is that they're very expensive and not every attorney is on your side. 
And some attorneys don't really care about you, not because they don't care about you, but because they're overwhelmed. They're basically desensitized to a lot of the carnage that goes on in courts because that's what they do for a living. And if they've been in there 10, 20, 30 years, they, some of them have become desensitized and they just don't care about something that many people don't really think about. And this was very apparent to me as for as many years and hours that I have put in a courtroom is that while you mm -hmm. may think that you've got a really tough attorney and that, you know, they're fighting this other attorney, that is not true. They all go to the same conventions. Mm -hmm. They all go to the same CEUs. They go to the same Christmas parties. They do. So while they may seem fierce and fighting on the outside, you don't know what they're saying about you on the other side. You mm -hmm. really don't. So trying to find an attorney that's really passionate about you and that really understands and cares. And I know some may, there's, just, there's some out there that do. I haven't really found that many. But mm -hmm. what many people don't think about is that this is your very life. This is your children's life. And everything that is said and done in, mm -hmm. you know, a court of law affects that. My children have been greatly harmed by this whole process. Greatly harmed during their formative years, their entire formative years. They were drugged through court. My ex-husband mm -hmm. was the, um, program director for the Head Start. Coalition of Santa Rosa County. That mm -hmm. is the program that goes oversees the preschools for federal money. Make sure that they're not abusing mm -hmm. anybody and that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, that the kids are safe. He committed six cases. Yes, it's in the court books. Six cases of abuse on our own children. Our own children. I committed zero. The state of Florida Christmas Day, 2005, my ex-husband committed an aggravated assault on my ex-significant other and I. We call in mm -hmm. to report it. He'd already called in saying something different and because it was told to me this way. Because some people sit on one side of the fence and others sit on the other, depending upon who they know and who they've worked with longer. That's where they sit. And so... I want to say within a week, I get a, I get a knock on the door from the Department of Children and Families, and this is what was told to me. No. I see that you're having a problem uh, keeping your children safe from domestic violence. We now reserve the right to take them from you. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine that? This was now, yeah, 2005. This was three years after the divorce. That was probably, for me, the shot heard around the world. That was it. That was when my entire world crumbled. And that's when I was numb. I mean, for two years, I was numb, just completely numb. I'm like, this is my whole life. I, I was told in the courtroom for the, on the very first hearing that Miss Hartnett, now that you've had a case of dependency filed upon you from the state of Florida regarding six cases of abuse committed on your own children, you are no longer able that to work in the field in which you chose. just gives me chills hearing you talk you about that. Listed 
as a person of interest in a case of dependency on your children. So that ruined everything for me. I mean, that just, it just like in my eyes, that ruined everything for me. That was told to me. It's, <laughs> it's crazy. It's a crazy world we live in. I mean, I had to, and probably the sickest thing about it was there's a whole mm-hmm. panel of people in there from Department of Children and Families that supposedly investigate me and my life and how I've treated my children. These were my peers that I was currently in classes with. Mm-hmm. I was probably the lowest point in my life. <laughs> Just going, I mean, I, I still had my job. But depending upon, I, I technically I was not, mm-hmm. should not have been working. Should that is if that makes any sense. But I was almost at the end of the time that I was working with it. When my, uh, how do you say, when you graduate mm-hmm. from one program to another, you have to give that position up. But I was almost there. So it was kind of a moot point. But um, I want to say for two and a half years, I was completely numb. Two, uh-uh. two and a half years, yeah, from t- was January of 2005 to the spring of 07. And, of course, when all was said and done, I was able to keep my children. But I don't know if I ever told you about the It Feels Great to Be Good book that I had created for my kids. <sighs> well, because of all the issues and craziness and everything that we'd gone through, at least I'm a firm believer in that the tension in the household caused some tension with my kids. They, you know, they were not be- kids for beginners. So when we were overseas in Germany, that's when everything was just crazy with the, yeah. Anyway, you could not, my kids are smart, all three of them. And you couldn't really, they're not the kind of kids you can plop in front of TV and walk away. Never have been. The minute you take your eyes off of them, they're busy doing something crazy, dismantling something or, you know, things little kids normally do anyway, if they're not watched. So make a long story short, I got tired of getting these little notes from the daycare system because I worked full time um, saying that my kids were bad. I said, my kids are not bad. These are not the same kids that come home with me every night because I actually I'm invested in them. I listen to them. I talk to them. I, you know, spend all my, all their waking time with them. And so I said, I want you all to start writing down specifically what they're doing and then sign your name to it. Well, imagine that my kids suddenly became good. Oof, I was, it's really funny how that mm-hmm. happened. But anyway, I got so disgusted with some of the things that was going on that they were trying to convince me that my child was doing. For example, this is kind of funny, but not um, James. He's my middle child. He, uh, <laughs> And he was little, we used to call him Forrest Gump because it'd be like, run, Forrest, run. That child just would take off at a mo- just like a horse, bolt, zoom, take off. And it's like, where is he going? He doesn't know, but he's getting there quick. So uh, one time I went to go pick him up and it was in the wintertime in Germany. So it's cold and snowy outside. And, and uh, when you go pick up a child from a military daycare, 
you have three checkpoints, first checkpoint, second checkpoint, and then to the classroom, third checkpoint. <laughs> I used to get there about 5.45 every night, and so they're marching all the kids to the aftercare. whose parents can't get there before then. So I'm going to the first checkpoint, and this whole little line of kids go by, and they go, mm, 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 mm. Uh, this can't be good. I get to the second <laughs> checkpoint, and that person goes, mm, 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 mm. And then I get to the classroom, and the two classroom teachers are there, and they go, James was very bad today. And I go, what did he do? And James is standing there, and he was wearing, like, little Oshkosh overalls and little light-up sneakers, and he was covered from head to toe with glue. Elmer's glue. I'll never forget that. He was saturated and looked like he had been body slamming glue. Okay. And so I looked and it was really funny because they have, um, this is in Germany. So they had these two German housekeepers and the German people loved my kids because they were redheaded and they were cute and German people get it. They get kids, you know, it's a whole different culture from America. They, they in Germany, they're really into their kids. So anyway, they used to get a kick out of James and Victoria. So oh my God. anyway, they're sitting there or standing there giggling with their mops and stuff. And so <laughs> apparently while they weren't looking, James went into the supply closet, took a one gallon thing of Elmer's glue, and he had strudled the entire five room classroom. You know, they had like the eating area. They had the tactile area. They had the reading area, the sleeping area, and then the washroom and all that. And there wasn't a place anywhere that he didn't strudel. I mean, it was amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was impressed. <laughs> okay. I was like, yeah, he's a busy boy. <laughs> and so while they were like, oh, he's so naughty and, and this and that, I looked at him and I smiled. I said, this looks like this took a little time, didn't it? And they looked at me and go, oh, yeah. I go, where were you? And then it got real quiet. I said, this took a little, you know, a little time here. It's like, you must not have known mm-hmm. that he was missing for quite a while. For him to go in there and take that. And I said, I mean, seriously, it's not any place that child missed. Okay. Every chair, every pillow, every table. And I know this because I stayed after James and I, we stayed after the hot, they called them Hossfraus. And we cleaned it all up. And I found out that liquid starch, okay, the kind that you know, liquid starch dissolves the Elmer's glue. And so we cleaned, it took us say about an hour and a half we cleaned everything up and you know maybe i'm a weirdo kind of a mom but when my kids would do something like that there's very few things they've ever done where i've you know went oh and, you know yelled at them or something and this one time um we were kids were in a christmas presentation at church they were singing and there was plays and everything like that and my daughter was up on the stage singing and my son was in the background, they're both in this play. And my ex-husband and his then wife walked in and took them off the stage and walked out of the church. Just, it just blew me away. And there was nothing that I could do about it. Mm-hmm. Nothing that I could do about it. And it was something about a birthday party that he said that they had agreed to. There was just, and I just sat there and cried because before they took the kids off stage, they were saying some very unkind things to me in the row behind me. And my friends, I had one on each side and they were just flabbergasted. They couldn't believe what they were saying. It's what they call gaslighting, crazy mm-hmm. making. And so a friend of mine, big ugly Jeff, 
<laughs> afterwards said, yeah, he was, love you, Jeff. But um, <laughs> he was pretty, pretty big guy. And he said, just call me big, ugly Jeff. And so he took me out to lunch afterwards. And um, he said, you know, Lorianne, you need to make friends with a bad biker gang. And we just laughed about it. I said, well, why is that? He goes, you need a presence. You need a group of people to just scare the life out of him so that he'll leave you alone. And I want to say after years of being terrorized by this man, they they used to show up in my classrooms. Mm-hmm. Seriously. She would be waiting for me when I got home. She was constantly calling me, asking me to meet her somewhere to discuss the children. Uh, one night she threw my son out of the house and I had to, my ex-significant other and I went to go get him. And I mean, that was a whole train wreck and a half. It basically turned into like a SWAT team oh my kind God. of situation. I mean, just stupid stuff that mm-hmm. damaged the kids, damaged mm-hmm. me. My ex-significant other and I, we were together for 14 years and that was, I think, our second year together. And He's like, this guy is insane. He even took my ex-significant other to court. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the guy stayed with me for quite a while afterwards. I mean, wow. He was just like, nobody should have to put up with this. But anyway, mm-hmm. getting back to the bad biker gang thing, um, we laughed it off, and I forgot about it until that final day in court mm-hmm. seven years later. I'm sitting in my master bedroom closet in a fetal position going, what did I do so wrong? this. And then I got an idea. I just thought, you know, there is a lot of merit to what Big Ugly Jeff said. I need a bad biker gang. And I thought, had I had legal representation that wouldn't, um, how you say, It was hard to get an attorney that would stay with me because this you know, Pensacola is kind of a small area. But when there's a reputation like my ex had of saying not ever agreeing with anything and just wasting the court's time, mm-hmm. we have two volumes there. People don't want to represent you because there's never any resolution. Mm-hmm. It's constant BS and baloney and what they call it, fluffy stuff. It's a lot of litigational abuse and it's a waste of time. Mm-hmm. So I had to represent myself. And although I did a pretty good job, um, it wasn't good enough because I don't have that Juris Doctorate behind my name. Mm-hmm. But I thought if I had three guys on either side of me, kind of like men in black with the black suits, white ties, black, you know, blah, 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 mm-hmm. black suits, white shirts, black ties, sunglasses, earbuds, mm-hmm. that would be a little ominous. I mean, that would be quite the presence because I had a representative of a nonprofit domestic violence center sit next to me, but that was it. And I had to be escorted out by deputies to my car, which was kind of frightening to me. And so that he wouldn't shoot me or anything like that. And I thought, you know, this is insane. Mm -hmm. And in the courtroom, they have to be careful where they see you so that no violence breaks. I mean, it's just, it's really horrible. Mm -hmm. And so I thought if I had that presence, that would be really good. And if I had a constant, persistent, assertive, legal representation to whereas 
if he filed like he did once a week, just erroneous baloney stuff that mm-hmm. was had no merit and always, always got thrown out. Mm-hmm. He, if there was like a pest control situation, like if there was one fee a month instead of by the hour and lasted for years instead of until I run out of money, mm-hmm. maybe things could change. Maybe I could actually stand a chance. For example, I found out when I was finished, having been court ordered to be psychosocially evaluated, sit through support groups and everything else, that my case was heinous and horrible and bizarre as we know it, but it's certainly not one of the worst. Mm -hmm. But it was the worst for me. And it was the worst for my kids. And I don't wish anybody to have to go through that. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I didn't know what to do. I was all alone in a state that I had no family in. After a while, your friends kind of start to leave. Mm-hmm. They don't want to get involved. And I thought, if I only had somebody to hand walk me through this. Because it you have to, it's so time consuming to address each issue that comes along and have to prepare yourself. You have to record every moment of your life, basically. And it's just so time consuming. And I thought, what if I had somebody to help me with that? And I was accused of all kinds of crazy things. Um, I'm not even going to go there. It's not even, it's just so ridiculous. But I know that there are people that have issues because of this. There are people that have, you know, drinking issues and what have you. But before you ever even get seen in a court of law, kind of have like a um, orientation of this is what may happen to you since you have found yourself in this situation. Mm-hmm. And see a counselor that can kind of pre-screen you and see where you're at in your situation. Where are you in your journey? You know, and I didn't have that. And a lot of the nonprofits that, you know, they're there to help you. They, they can't tell you anything legal. They're not attorneys and it's against the law to give legal advice mm-hmm. unless you are one. So I thought, well, what if I, if I had all that, would that make a difference? And then I had given uh, an event for 12 survivors of domestic violence in which um, a friend of mine and I, we raised, um, I want to say $23,000 worth of products and services and goods to give to these ladies. So each lady got about a $2,000 basket kind of thing and a makeover from head to toe. They could have whatever they wanted. I mean, they were made to feel like princesses for a night. Mm-hmm. And it took place at this beautiful mansion on the water in Pensacola. It was just really a very magical night. And for that one night, they got to forget their troubles, their problems, and how they got there. And they got to experience a group of people that really, really love them. And I called the event the look of love because when you've gone through that situation for years and years and years, you kind of forget what love is like. And I want to say for about six weeks, one month of six weeks, yeah, I walked. Scambia County, Santa Rosa County, and went all the way out to Santa Rosa Beach, even. I talked to florists. I talked to women's boutiques. 
I talked to gyms, uh, anybody that would actually listen to me. I just knocked on every door that I could, little offices mm-hmm. here and there, even like H&R Block. And the very cool thing was is that when I mentioned what I was doing to these people to do this event, the women came out of the woodwork and the guys disappeared. They just disappeared. They didn't want to hear it. It was scary. It was icky. It was uncomfortable for them. Mm-hmm. But every single woman came out and had somebody that was close to them that they knew that was affected by domestic violence. Mm-hmm. That was phenomenal to me. I just, I couldn't believe it because when you're in it, you're like, you feel alone. So in sitting in my closet, going, what did I do? What do I need? What do I need? What could I have if I could wave my magic wand and have a solution to this? I thought, you know, if I could, do what I want to do. I want to build a foundation that provides legal services for victims of domestic violence and child abuse, male or female, who are ready to leave. That's a very key word, ready to leave mm-hmm. their abuser. And before you would even see an attorney, you would be screened. So if you were accused of anything or if you have any issues, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, any kind of disorders they were dealt with immediately before you even went to see an attorney Mm -hmm. because that's part of the healing process right there you would walk through the doors and you would start your healing and we will hand walk you through the entire process Mm -hmm. and i learned that it takes a minimum of five years to detoxify from what has happened to you you're a damaged person now and I don't say that in a negative way. You've, you've changed. You've been changed. Mm-hmm. Whether we all want to admit it or not, we've been changed. You, when you suffer from constant abuse, you become depressed. You become hopeless. You become anxious. And I was diagnosed with PTSD from the, my experience. Because I was constantly being terrorized by him. I never knew when he was going to pop up or what I'd be accused of next. Mm -hmm. And uh, just can't live a regular life. And um, along with mental health counseling, um, illegal representation, just like pest control, there would be a monthly fee. And if the opposing side filed every day, we'd be there every day. Mm -hmm. Eventually, they'd run out of money. We won't. Mm-hmm. Because it'll be a five-year contract of as much legal representation as you need. Because I truly believe that it's a minimum of five years mm-hmm. from somebody that is just has issues. And I'm not out to annihilate men. I'm not against men or anything like that. I just realized everybody has issues, but it's all on how you deal with it. Mm-hmm. Matters. Yeah. And I just want what the law says. Mm-hmm. Protection that someone deserves. I mean, just there was something in the news just last week about a woman who was shot, shot and killed, stabbed, something like that. She died, but she had a protection order. Those mm-hmm. don't really mean squat. <laughs> they really don't. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, it, it angers the abuser. Well, and it struck me, you know, you had to have a escort out, out 
of the courtroom to your car, you know, that's, that's great. But that is the, you know, 30 seconds between now and then, you know, there is no protections for people besides yourself, you know, what, what skills you may have. I don't know how to say that, you know, but it's just, there is no survival skills or or legal. There's no legal way to protect yourself from harm like that. You know, and it's just insane that these people have to go forth like that. Exactly. And I, I kind of figured it out. Um, sitting in my closet, just my mind just keeps going and going and going. And I kind of figured it out that if where I was at in the panhandle of Florida, it would not be unusual to have a hundred cases come on each month of domestic violence, seeking a divorce, seeking help, seeking protection for them and their children, themselves Mm -hmm. and their children. And I figured, well, you know, if I, financed $15,000 over five years at like three and a half percent interest, you know, had a hundred cases come on each month, you know, by the end of five years, that's 6,000 cases. And I think it was like 300 and I know some odd dollars a month or whatever, but I have boxes in my storage shed of all my notes down Mm -hmm. to the last paperclip, what I need. And I figured at the end I would have, $43.5 $43.5 million is what the revenue that would be brought in, the gross income. Mm-hmm. And I figured that if I could fundraise the money in the beginning to build everything so that there is there, there are no bills, I have everything paid for plus the five years out, mm-hmm. that it would be self-sustaining. Mm-hmm. And that would be the key. So I would take the the net income, I would pay another five years out, and I figured there was about fifteen million left over, mm-hmm. and with that money, I wanted to build housing for these people. Mm-hmm. Basically, a gated, secured community for them to live in. Because mm-hmm. housing, affordable housing, was also one of my passions when I was going to school. I was in a social work, psychology, and social sciences, mm-hmm. and so you know, people are my passion and. I do know that one of my biggest um, fears was being homeless, mm-hmm. especially when I have lost. I've been told to my face, we can't hire you because we're afraid of your husband or your ex-husband, excuse me. Although that's illegal, that's a valid point. Mm-hmm. We all have heard about somebody going in and shooting a place up, a domestic violence issue. Mm-hmm. That's a valid point. Now, if we had... If, if I had a foundation such as this to where is the presence, it's a quiet presence and a place for the victim and her children could go and live that's safe and secure, you're basically hand walking them through the process mm-hmm. for five years and helping them heal, helping her go to school, you know, pick an occupation, go to school, you know, get a degree, learn how to earn and learn how to buy your own house and take care of yourself and the children. And one of the biggest things that hit me straight between the eyes was one time the deputies left our house. I had to make a statement for something and the kids looked up at me and they said, mom, how come they don't believe us? That hurt. Mm -hmm. When you can't protect your own babies, Mm -hmm. that hurt. Mm 
Yeah. Well, and children are so much more tuned into these things and so much more aware than we think they are. You know, they may not know literally what's going on, but they can tell, you know, and they they know when something's not right and they can see the power struggle and they can see the, you know, um, they can see that something there is not quite how it should be. Absolutely. And the sad fact is, is I want to say the last two years of all the issues, um, the state of Florida, how you say, well, let me back up a little bit. My ex-significant other and I dropped the children off for Christmas Day. I had them Christmas Eve Mm -hmm. and I dropped them off for Christmas Day, Christmas morning. And my ex was furious with me. Because he wanted them for Christmas Eve because they had um, infant twin brothers that they want. I guess they wanted a Christmas Eve thing with, which is ridiculous. But anyway, you can't wait 12 hours. Wow. You know, it just it's ridiculous. But he was so used to bullying me around and getting what he wanted. That's right when Florida signed the um, stand your ground law. Mm-hmm. And so we, you know, we. Dave and I had been through the drill before. We dropped the kids off around the corner and we drove very slowly, you know, down the street until we saw them go in the front door of their house. We never went directly in front of the house or anything that's that was confrontational. We weren't like that. We tried to avoid that at all costs. So we dropped the kids off. We watched the kids go in. We started driving down the road and Dave had a little Ford S Ford Focus. That's what it was. A little hatchback thing. Mm-hmm little tiny car and we almost made it out of the subdivision onto the main road which is kind of like a highway and he goes does your ex have a white pickup and i said yeah why and he goes he goes he's right on our tail and he chased us at almost 100 miles an hour down the highway right on our tail Mm -hmm. and for some strange reason neither one of us had our cell phones because my house wasn't very far from there We just loaded the kids up with their goodies and dropped them off and we're headed home. And so when we got home, I made a phone call. He had already called and had said, God only knows what he said. But anyway, um, I made a complaint and what did they say? You could hear the dispatchers in the background going, well, you know, she had him overnight. And it's like, what? That's, you know, that's insane. Dispatch, that's, that's out of their pay grade okay that's <laughs> they're out of their line they're not supposed to formulate a judgment mm-hmm. did a crime occur yes or no yes it did you are not allowed to chase people down in your car at 100 miles an hour mm-hmm. you know you're not allowed to do that that's a crime that's called what is that called an aggravated assault and so to make a long story short we had to go fill out paperwork and that's when um Dave um, filled out a protection order for himself mm-hmm. and my ex, let's see, apparently, and un- even unknown to me, I told you I had to call many, many times. He had committed six cases of child abuse on his own children. Mm. And that's when I want to say about a week after Dave and I filed that paperwork for protection orders. Mm-hmm. I get a knock on the door, a usual knock on the door from the Department of Children and Families. And I'm sure there's fine people in the department, but I haven't met many. And um, 
anyway, they knocked on the door and they said, we see you're having a, a problem uh, protecting your children from domestic violence. We now reserve the right to take them away from you. So for two years, as I'm in the social work department and social sciences at UWF, and I was working with the Department of Juvenile Justice, I am now in a case of dependency for the state of Florida. That ended my career right there. Boom. Mm-hmm. Once you've been in a case of dependency like that, you are not allowed to work in that field anymore. Wow. So that ended it. Yeah. And that's my ex kind of slowed down a little bit mm-hmm. on his abuse until I think he still filed stupid stuff for about four months after that. And then it really hit him like, wow, I've hit rock bottom. There's, I really stand to lose it all. Mm -hmm. Because that's when they told him, you know, you are wasting our time with this erroneous baloney. You are damaging your children, you know. mm -mm. But yeah, he had committed six cases of abuse and I stood the chance to lose my children. And I think that's probably when I hit rock bottom too with depression and PTSD. We had to be, oh my gosh, our lives were under a microscope for two years. Mm-hmm. Two years. The Department of Children and Families was allowed to pop in and visit at any time. Mm-hmm. They, they desired, but my philosophy was always bring it on. I have nothing to hide. I'm always happy to talk. And basically to make a long story short, um, I learned a lot. I was, of course, relieved of anything. I mean, they were just, a lot of things were brought out in court. Um, I had a really good children's advocate mm-hmm. from the court who was able to bring to light a lot of things that I definitely was not instigating. I was doing everything I could to stay away from all of this. But the bottom line is this, is um, the only way in my mind, and from what I've seen through years and years and years of being in the court system, um, both as a victim and both as representing the kids that I had on my caseload. Um, the only way to stop this social ill, basically, is with a presence, with a bunch of big dudes that say, no, not anymore. Mm-hmm. And with unlimited, and I hate to say this, I know there'll be people disagree, but um, you need unlimited legal representation. Because you're, you're going to have to have it. And that's why a lot of this proliferates because it's a us versus them kind of thing. And you have mm-hmm. to continuously prove yourself over and over. And that is not only draining and time consuming, but it's expensive. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't have it. So that's what I'm working on. I have created an organization foundation. I, I'm not really wanting to have a nonprofit because I'm kind of um, private about how I want things done. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of um, fussy about the way I want things mm-hmm. done, having been a victim. Mm-hmm. And so I don't really want to have to go through a whole group of people aboard, so to speak, but I want to become a foundation. But anyway, it's called HOME, and it stands for Human Opportunities Made Equal. And it'll be legal representation, mental health counseling, and the kicker, the best part is a spa. Because <laughs> I have learned that you need to feel beautiful as well. 
inside and out. Absolutely. I love that. What a valuable thing that you could put out to your community, to whoever needs it. It would be affordable, impenetrable. (laughs) (laughs) That's the whole key, impenetrable. Mm -hmm. I would... I already have all my plans down and who I would be hiring and why. And I mean, just and affordable housing is basically, you know, one of my passions too. And I just see it as a really a win-win situation for all. Mm-hmm. I really do. And my, my hope and goal with the first one is that when I get the first one down and I do have a, a partner, his name is Marcel and he's actually written four books and he's a profiler. Mm-hmm. And he's actually helped um, resolve several high-profile cases that have been on the news. And anyway, he's my partner, and he will be the one that will be helping me put all this together. Actually, we are already in the process of that. Mm-hmm. And my goal would be to put one in every single community that has the population to support it. Mm-hmm. Because I think that if women had a choice and I know that I certainly needed a guiding hand because when you're hurting so bad and you're in a panic situation, you don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And I know with my ex-husband, just like being thrown out on the road in the middle of the night, who knew? I mean, how, how are we trained? How do we practice what do I do if I get thrown out on the side of the road with my alligators? I don't know. You know, so you just don't know what to do in a mm-hmm. lot of situations. And I don't care how well you think you are trained and how well you think you can protect yourself. You just never know. Because mm-hmm. I have frozen situations that I didn't think I would. And I have uh, chasing bad guys. <laughs> I had a big ram four by four when I was up in Alaska. And back in that day, we had the little Willie the Ram that was on the hood. Mm-hmm. And I was parked at my mom's house in the middle of the night. I heard a noise. I looked out the window, and there was these two kids trying to take Willie the Ram off the hood. And I went out running after them, which was not a smart thing. Don't do that. Okay, bad <laughs> idea. So, but I did. So you never know how you're going to react. Mm-hmm. Um, another time, Fort Hood, Texas, I was coming home because on the way to daycare, uh, one of the kids started throwing up. We had a problem with ear infections, and I thought, okay, I'll be at the campus clinic for the rest of the day. Dropped the healthy one off and went back home to change the one that was covered in vomit. Drove up to my house, and there was someone walking out of my door with my TV in their hand. Oh, wow. How, what do you do? I was dumb. I leaned on the horn. I didn't know what to do. And I shocked them. They shocked me. They went one way. I went the other which was a good thing, but where I lived in Fort Hood, Texas, we bought this house that was like in the middle of nowhere. And our closest neighbor was a crack house. And I would get visits quite often by these people. They really didn't do much. They would pilfer a little here and a little there and ask me for money once in a while, but still it's not a good, comfortable situation to be in. And the police stopped by every single day to see how I was doing. And the funny thing is, is one of the police officers that used to stop by every day, he was up the street 
at a fast food restaurant having lunch. And I called 911 because I didn't have a cell phone. I went to a phone booth and called 911. And he came and chastised me. He goes, why didn't you just drive by? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. I was shocked. You know, and then I had to go do a lineup. That was always fun. You know, it's like, this is really scary stuff. So I left Fort Hood, Texas two weeks after that. I couldn't get out of there fast enough. But that was kind of a crazy place. Both <laughs> with my ex and otherwise. So yeah, it sounds like it. Sounds like it. It was. So there's a lot of um, problems out there, I think, for women. And I think as long as we continue to kind of piecemeal it, put band-aids on it and not really take it, take the bull by the horn, so to speak, and really address it and say, you can't bother her anymore. Legally, you're not allowed to do that. Mm -hmm. Sorry, she's ours, not yours. Mm -hmm. I mean, my opinion, that's what it's going to take. It's just a nice, quiet, legal presence mm -hmm. and a place. You've got to provide a place for her and the children and her family members should they want counseling too. But the spa, I would like to have a spa open seven days a week with like maybe a, a library where you can look things up and you can sit and talk with other people mm -hmm. over coffee that are in the same situation. I mean, this is all gated, so yeah, nobody can just wander in off the street. Mm -hmm. Kind of have to have a reason to be there. Yeah. But Absolutely. women, well, they go back because they have no place to go mm -hmm. and nobody understands. I mean, you lose friends over this. Mm -hmm. well, that is my passion and my goal and what I'm doing. Oh, and I'm so excited to follow you along on this journey and interview you again and again as it changes and morphs and stuff, you know. And um, one thing that was so special to me is you're a listener of Women of the West. And you and I kind of connected over a post I made <clears throat> about domestic violence and stuff, uh, something that my friend had written. Um, and it was just so. In, inspiring and uh, what's the word you just gave me the verification that what I'm doing is good and I'm helping somebody you know and hearing you talk about your goals and stuff has been so fun and so special and so you know um, well it's out of my comfort zone because it's not you know the, all these things are very exciting and very hard to talk about and um i just love that i got you on here so we could talk more about it i feel completely honored that you asked and when i saw your podcast i'm like oh my gosh this is awesome because everybody on there i i <laughs> think i'm your oldest person on there but i'm okay with that you know <laughs> totally older cool means it, you know? older means wiser come on Hey, girls, after 45, wear the leopard print glasses. Do what you want <laughs> because you can. No other reason. If nobody likes it, too bad. Too bad. <laughs> but, um, you know, I've learned a lot of things throughout life. I'd like to be able to pass a lot of things on voluntarily if somebody would like to listen. I feel like I have observed a lot of things. I've been so lucky to live from one end of the world to the other. Um, being in Europe, I had a job within a month there where I traveled by myself everywhere. I never had a bad experience. Enjoyed meeting all kinds of people. Life is too short 
It is just too short for garbage. It mm-hmm. really is. And I think we talked before about personalities and certain personalities that we've come across. And it's like, I don't get it. Mm-hmm. I totally don't get it. It's like girls, how you say, like a sisterhood. We need to be here for each other, not fighting each other. Mm-hmm. You know, and if we compete with each other in a very good way, very healthy way that lifts each other up. And anything other than that, some of the experiences that I've come across, like my ex's wife, per se, I will never understand that philosophy Mm -hmm. in a person that would want to destroy a family like that. That's just not healthy, Mm -hmm. very dysfunctional. There's so many other guys in the world, you know, just like, please. But um, anyway, there's a lot of things I don't understand. But what I do understand is that I do want to help. I do love people. I do want to see people live good lives mm-hmm. and happy lives and have freedom. Because I lost my freedom for a long time. Mm-hmm. Just freedom of being able to just go to the store and not have to worry about somebody popping up and saying I I assaulted them, you know, or something Mm -hmm. like that. Because I was told by my judge, unless I had a bodyguard and a camera with me, don't go anywhere. I had to miss out on my kids' sporting events. I had to miss out on, you know, events at school. Mm -hmm. And while some people may think that's not a big deal, I actually grieve that a lot. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, that's a part of my life that I didn't get to live. And that hurts. And I don't ever want to see anybody have to go through that. So my goal is that, you know, in my mind just keeps going and going. And I thought, what if there was one every county? You know, that's probably pushing it. Some states don't even have enough population to support it. But just as many as I could put out there to where women felt empowered. Like, we got your back. We're going to get through this together. And guess what? You're going to look fabulous while you're doing it. Because, <laughs> you know, life's too short. Mm-hmm. So wear those leopard print glasses. But um, just you could actually just imagine what you could do to women's lives and to children's lives. You know, because as a, you know, I have a degree in psychology and we're always looking for ways to get published. I'm published, by the way. But um, <laughs> we're always looking for ways to get published, how we can get grants for, you know, funding to do studies and stuff like that. And I was thinking, gosh, how am I going to get funding for this thing? Because it's pretty ominous. And I thought, well, you know what? Imagine how many kids, and I didn't realize how important this was, and it's so important, when your children feel that another adult backs you up, that law enforcement backs you up, that the court system backs you up, mm-hmm. you know, they feel safe. And they respect their mom as well, too. I mean, there's, Mm -hmm. I I can't emphasize how important it is that kids are proud of their parents. They feel safe with their parents. They feel that their parents are doing the right thing, Mm -hmm. the right thing for them and protecting them. And I was thinking, well, gee, one route I could go is how many kids will actually graduate from high school? How many kids can we keep out of drug use? Mm-hmm. How many unwanted pregnancies can we prevent simply because we'll provide them with alternative methods mm-hmm. of spending their time? Mm-hmm. You know, and allowing mom five years to go to school mm-hmm. so she can get a good job and she could reconnect with her kids mm-hmm. and she could spend time with her kids and they could learn to be a family 
again safely. That five years is invaluable. But imagine the young adults it's going to produce and the the strong families it's going to produce. You know, my hope is to prevent a lot of things like, you know, drug abuse, um, future, you know, violence, because children learn what they live. Mm -hmm. Um, How many jobs that kids will be able to go into? How many scholarships they can get to go to college? I mean, Mm -hmm. all that will be highly encouraged. Um, When I worked for the Department of Juvenile Justice, the kids, I would have about 23 kids on my caseload at all times. I was a little older than the other aftercare counselors. But um, the one thing that I loved is just allowing them to tell me what they wanted to do. And then this is a social work thing. You're here. You need to be here. Let's walk step by step by step by step by step until we get to the goal. And I will hold your hand every step of the way. And I think that women that are in a situation like that and their children and their families, they need that. They need to know what's, what they, what they have available to them. And for example, in the first meeting of one of my, you know, each one of my cases, um, I would look at them and of course, knowing that they were citizens and they had social security cards, they said, but I'll never be able to do this. I'll never be able to have that. I go, do you have one of these? I said, you do have one of these. I know because I have your number right here. I said, as you have that, you are entitled to a whole cafeteria of awesome things mm-hmm. that you know that you can go to school for free if you have the grades. You can become a doctor free if you have the grades. And I'm going to show you how, and we're going to research grants, and we're going to research scholarships, and I'm going to show you how you can do this. Mm-hmm. And that is so important while you're healing from the problems that you have. Mm-hmm. Just having opportunity mm-hmm. and looking good at the same time. Mm-hmm. Well. Yeah, having the confidence to take, <laughs> you know, um, have the confidence to take that opportunity and do it well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Lori, thank you so much for doing this interview. We covered a lot, and I have a feeling you and I will talk many more times. We could talk all day. <laughs> I certainly hope so. Lorianne can be found on Instagram at a girl has to have choices. I'll tag her and post her website link so you guys can follow up and check her out. Thank you to Lorianne. It's truly got me thinking about how I can be of service to women in my own life and my community. I'd also like to thank you all. I'm fairly open about my journey of battling depression and trying to live my life to the fullest. This podcast has taken a backseat in my life, but I feel so grateful that I've created this place to share content with you all and I'm often reminded why I started it. I'm definitely called to produce this for you all, but also for myself. Thank you.